Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Jillian Hayes, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. Today, we will be, dare I say, deconstructing some dogma around the management of infective endocarditis. We figured nothing says Valentine's Day like an endocarditis-themed Breakpoints episode, so grab your favorite chocolate and settle in. We'll be discussing several controversies, sticky situations, if you will, and I will do my best to set the scene for each topic as we go along. Without further ado, let's introduce you to the real stars of today's show, our panelists. First up is Dr. Bobby Jo Stoner. She is a clinical pharmacist specializing in infective endocarditis and part of the multidisciplinary endocarditis team at the University of Kentucky Healthcare in Lexington, Kentucky. She completed pharmacy school at Campbell University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences before pursuing residency at Vidant Medical Center, now ECU Health, in Greenville, North Carolina. Prior to coming to Lexington, she worked for five years as an infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of North Carolina Medical Center here in the Triangle, and her interests include population health, infective endocarditis, and transitions of care as it relates to infectious diseases. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. All right, next up is Dr. Jonathan Ryder, who is an instructor and antimicrobial stewardship research fellow at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. He completed medical school at UNMC, internal medicine training at Indiana University School of Medicine, and returned to UNMC for ID fellowship training. He is interested in antimicrobial stewardship, infection prevention, medical education, and infective endocarditis. Thanks so much for joining us today on Breakpoints. Hey, thanks for letting me join. It's a real honor to be here. All right, and rounding out our wonderful group today is Dr. Sammy L. Delati, who graduated from the Ohio State University College of Medicine. He then went on to the, the University of Michigan to complete a joint residency in internal medicine and pediatrics and a fellowship in infectious disease. During his training, he helped create a team approach to improve the care of patients with infectious endocarditis. He is now an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Kentucky, where he is director of their multidisciplinary endocarditis team. Thanks so much for rounding out our awesome panel today. Thanks so much for having me, and, and thank you for picking this topic. Uh, I'm really excited to discuss. Before we get into all the goodness that today's episode holds, I want to give a bit of credit where credit is due. When we were brainstorming podcast episode ideas for 2023, this episode was inspired by none other than SIDP President-elect Sam Aitken. Uh, this past September, Sam tweeted what I think a lot of us have so often pondered, and to quote his tweet, uh, reminded again how remarkably bad the literature supporting rifampin gent vanco for MRSA prosthetic valve endocarditis is. Even the in vitro rabbit data are conflicting. How did this become standard? There was some great discussion in that Twitter thread, and it led us to our episode today. So thank you, Sam, for lamenting on Twitter and leading us here. What better place to start our episode than by investigating the need for adjunctive gentamicin and rifampin in the treatment of prosthetic valve staphylococcal endocarditis? While Sam's particular concerns were specific to MRSA, we'll start off by focusing on staphylococcal PVE as a whole. Unbeknownst to many of us at the time of Sam's tweets, one of our guests today, Dr. Ryder, and his team were working on an article titled Deconstructing the Dogma, Systematic Literature Review and Meta-Analysis of Adjunctive Gentamicin and Rifampin in Staphylococcal Prosthetic Valve Endocarditis. So, Jonathan, I will come to you first. What inspired your group to investigate the need for rifampin and gent in prosthetic valve endocarditis? And to borrow from Sam, how did this become the standard? 
That's such a great question. And much like this podcast episode was inspired by a tweet, this uh, this paper idea actually came from Twitter itself. Um, back in March of 2021, uh, Gabe Vilches actually ran a Twitter poll asking uh, the Twitter sphere the same question that Sam did about what's the role in gentamicin and rifampin and MRSA prosthetic valve endocarditis. And in this very non-scientific uh, poll of about 210 uh, voters, 43% responded that they would use uh, Vank, Gent, and Rifampin, and 39% would use Vank plus or minus Rifampin without any Gentamicin. And so there is clearly equipoise on this issue in the Twitter sphere. And if you look at the literature, there's been a survey done of about 550 um, infectious disease doctors and found that about 66% of them used Gent and 91% of them used Rifampin for staphylococcal prosthetic valve endocarditis. So despite this being part of the American Heart Association and IDSA guidelines, in actual practice, there seems to be quite a bit of variation. So on Twitter, there was a, a suggestion by Todd Lee that this would be a good idea for a systematic review and meta-analysis. Nico Cortez-Penfield and I chimed in, and along with a few others who eventually became co-authors, this paper was off. So that's the story behind the paper. But where did the actual idea behind rifampin and gentamicin begin uh, in the story of staphylococcal prosthetic valve endocarditis. It's always a little tricky to figure out the exact etiology, but that the data that exists comes from in vitro synergy testing and in vivo rat models of retained hardware and then rabbit models of endocarditis as Sam was referencing. So first we can look at what data is cited by the guidelines, which is used to make a class one level B recommendation for two weeks of GENT and six weeks of rifampin for prosthetic valve endocarditis due to staph, including coag-negative staph and, and staph aureus, although I think they give a slight downgrade to level C for staph aureus. So the guidelines actually cite two animal models and a single clinical study for the recommendations and acknowledge they're extrapolating data from coag-negative staph uh, to staph aureus, with the justification being that there's a really high mortality of staph aureus prosthetic valve endocarditis. So these animal models that were used were actually experimental foreign body infection models in rats in the early 1990s, and we're looking at rifampin. and found that combinations with rifampin had decreased colony-forming units compared to non-rifampin-containing regimens, and the three-drug regimens were generally better than monotherapy at decreasing colony-forming units. So in particular, the fluoroxacin and rifampin combinations seemed particularly useful. It is interesting, if you look at that 21-day uh, treatment study, one of the rats died in the control arm and two of them died in the triple therapy arm with a high amount of diarrhea and more weight loss in the three-drug group, which I think we could appreciate um, from our standpoint. So the other study cited by the guidelines is by Drinkovich et al. And it's a retrospective study of 61 surgically resected valves with prosthetic valve endocarditis. And about half were coag-negative staph and half were MSSA, and none of them had MRSA. The valves that were resected were cultured, and then they looked at which antibiotic combinations were given to see which valves uh, were more likely to grow. And when the patients that received any combination of a beta-lactam or vancomycin with or without uh, aminoglycoside and with or without rifampin, were compared to those that only got monotherapy, the combination groups were about six times more likely to be culture negative. But this study did not have any patient-related outcomes that were reported, nothing about treatment-related adverse events, or even, even if the patients lived or died. 
And so given its retrospective nature, I suspect that there's numerable uncontrolled confounders in the study and the lack of patient-centered outcomes really makes this study difficult to extrapolate into clinical care. Of course, there's a lot more data than these three papers that are cited in the guidelines, um, which were summarized nicely in a clinical microbiology review article on rifampin about a decade ago that we can uh, provide in the show notes. But there's numerous in vivo and in vitro studies showing varying outcomes for rifampin with staphylococcal species. And the more common model is the rabbit endocarditis model, which again, Sam was referencing. And these endocarditis models often did not involve any type of prosthetic material. And there's a lot of limitations to the in vitro and in vivo data and their translation to the clinical world. So these rats and rabbits are not taking medications that may interact, uh, such as anticoagulants or antiretroviral therapy. Uh, side effects such as hearing loss are usually not measured. Um, and oftentimes the mice are sacrificed after a few days to measure the colony forming units on the valve, rather than whether or not they actually can survive the infection with treatment. So to me, it's not totally surprising that there's less uh, bacteria whenever um, the valves are removed, um, because we know from prior studies that combination therapy probably does clear bacteremia slightly faster. But the main question is how well a human can tolerate these therapies to gain any benefit which we haven't consistently seen in multiple combination uh, therapy trials for staph bacteremia. And despite some rabbit uh, endocarditis models of native valve endocarditis demonstrating a benefit of rifampin, we know from several human clinical trials, the largest and the most definitive of which is the ARREST randomized controlled trial, the addition of rifampin for staph aureus bacteremia or native valve endocarditis is not beneficial. So that's the story for rifampin. The story for gentamicin is largely the same. There's older studies looking at uh, possible in vitro and in vivo synergy, but clinical studies in native valve endocarditis and staph aureus bacteremia, such as the daptomycin registrational trial, where it was compared to a combination therapy with gentamicin, have not shown this benefit. And so there is a clear signal for harm in these studies, primarily nephrotoxicity uh, within this literature. So I will note that if you read the AHA guidelines, from uh, 1989, you'll see very similar recommendations in those as you see in the current 2015 guidelines. And um, they've basically kept these uh, recommendations the same because there's not been a whole lot of new evidence that's come out and the mortality still remains high. So why did we wanna do this study? Because we wanted to see just how much clinical evidence existed especially with the lack of a clear correlation between prior in vitro and vivo studies and, and clinical outcomes. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ryder. Really appreciate your overview of the, um, the background here for gentamicin and rifampin. Um, the one thing I wanted to add too is that there was um, a recent uh, clinical study that came out in uh, CID in May of 2021 that looked at uh, clinical outcomes for patients with prosthetic valve endocarditis, either secondary to staph aureus or coag negative staph. Uh, with or without the addition of rifampin. Um, and this is really just kind of showing clinically what you've described uh, in terms of the, uh, the laboratory data. Um, with, so they looked at uh, 180 patients, um, as I mentioned, with prosthetic valve endocarditis due to staph species. Um, and what they found were that um, uh, despite all of the isolates being susceptible to rifampin, only 101, were treated, uh, 101 patients were treated with rifampin. Um, and then 79 patients uh, received no rifampin. 
The one-year mortality uh, outcomes were similar between the two groups, 37.6% for the group that received rifampin and 31.6% uh, for the group um, without rifampin. Uh, the relapse rates uh, were also similar, 5.9% uh, with rifampin, 8.9% uh, without, uh, those were not statistically uh, significant differences. And then finally, patients treated with rifampin had longer hospital lengths of stay, um, 42 days versus 31 days. Uh, so clinically, uh, you know, we're not seeing that there's um, a benefit to, to addition of rifampin in these patients, um, just kind of piggybacking off what you've talked about with the laboratory data and models. That was a great overview, um, Dr. Ryder, and I really look forward to reading your paper. Hopefully, you'll continue the groundwork as maybe less is more attitude for this particular scenario. Um, as a pharmacist, I like to always say that medications in particular, antimicrobials, are not benign. Therefore, make sure we're purposeful for their use um, and it needs to be considered. I just really think it just, um, you know, again, thinking about maybe less is more in this particular scenario. I love that. Thank you all for setting such a comprehensive background. Uh, Bobby Joe, I think all pharmacists would say yes and amen. We will never feel upset if we can avoid something like gentamicin or rifampin, especially if a patient doesn't need it. Um, so Jonathan, I'll, I'll come back to you. Now that we've decided, you know, we've cast some reasonable doubt on the literature uh, and the data that do exist. Uh, can you walk us through what you and your co-authors found for your particular paper? Absolutely. So we did a systematic review to answer the following question. So in adults that have prosthetic valve endocarditis that are due to staphylococci, and that's both coagulase negative staph and staph aureus, that are treated either with a beta-lactam or a glycopeptide, that's their backbone antibiotic, does adding gentamicin by itself, rifampin by itself, or gentamicin and rifampin in combination, how does it compare to a beta-lactam or glycopeptide monotherapy? And does that result in any kind of improvement in clinical outcomes, things like lower mortality, lower surgery, lower relapse, reduced length of stay? And is it safe? What, what are rates of nephrotoxicity, hepatotoxicity, drug-drug interactions, the things that Bobby Joe was just mentioning? We only looked at clinical studies. We did include observational studies, but we didn't look at like things like case reports. And we did not look at any of the in vitro or in vivo studies that I was mentioning. So after the systematic review, we found a total of four studies in our literature review uh, up through April of 2022. And two of those studies actually probably had some overlap of patients because it was the same author group from the same hospital system during the same years of study from 1975 to 1980. And then the two other studies were in the 21st century. So you can see that there's uh, a 20 year uh, gap basically in the data. All four studies combined only totaled a total of 343 patients. Um, a single study included patients with beta-lactam or glycopeptide monotherapy. And that leaves the rest of the studies comparing two therapies to three therapies. So either rifampin plus backbone to uh, gent rifampin backbone or gent plus a backbone to gent rifampin and backbone. These studies were all retrospective. There were no prospective randomized trials, and they all had a moderate risk of bias. About 45% of the cases were staph aureus and 55% coagulative staph, with about half of the methicillin resistant uh, altogether. About 40% of the patients received surgery. There were varying definitions of endocarditis as the early studies were before the modified Duke criteria came out. 
and the clinical outcomes that were reported were quite heterogeneous between studies. So we then did a meta-analysis of the various antibiotic combinations that I listed above, and when you did uh, a comparison of all those different possibilities, there were no significant differences in one-year mortality. None of the studies looked at uh, repeat surgery rates. Two of the studies found no difference in the risk of relapse or recurrence. A single study that uh, was already mentioned um, looked at length of stay, finding that rifampin arm had a longer length of stay. And um, only two of the studies actually reported any safety outcomes, with one study finding uh, no nephrotoxicity with the adjunctive gentamicin, and one study found that the rifampin arm had about a 30% discontinuation rate uh, in comparison to the no rifampin arm, including about 11 of the 31 patients that were discontinued um, being due to hepatotoxicity. That same study found several drug-drug interactions in the rifampin arm, in particular with anticoagulants, including a 20% increase in vitamin K antagonist imbalances, even though that wasn't statistically significant, it was um, higher than in the no rifampin group. And when we looked at monotherapy, um, there was only that one study, and in that study, only 10 patients got monotherapy. And of those 10 patients, four of them were receiving a beta-lactam for methicillin-resistant staph epi, which we would now consider to be inadequate therapy. So all told in the literature, um, for over 40 years now, there have only been six patients that are truly receiving control for um, uh, staph prosthetic valve endocarditis. So ultimately, what we found was that the clinical data is not really supportive of the recommendations to treat with either rifampin or gentamicin in combination for staph prosthetic valve endocarditis. And while there is very little clinical data available, it does not show evidence of benefit. So we know from several other randomized controlled trials, as I mentioned, that adjunctive rifampin and gentamicin are not helpful in uh, staph aureus bacteremia and staph uh, native valve endocarditis. Um, and they do result in adverse events like nephrotoxicity, drug-drug uh, interactions, et cetera. So when we thought about, you know, how we would do um, like a grade recommendation for this, we thought it was more of a class three recommendation, meaning that there's no clear evidence of benefit and that there, there's possible harm. And that the level of evidence was a B with very low quality evidence observational studies. So there definitely appears to be equipoise in this space. And the best way to answer this clinical question is with a well-designed randomized trial. Yeah, I really appreciate Dr. Ryder taking the time to walk us through what he and his group found. And again, I look forward to reading the paper. Um, I would agree that a randomized control trial is needed. Um, you know, my brain always goes to clinical practice. So ultimately, in clinical practice, I would pose the question, you know, why add gentamicin and or rifampin if there's no clear benefit? Um, I understand no harm was found in some observational studies, but as we know, like adding multiple nephrotoxic agents such as vancomycin and gentamicin in the setting of a, such a complex disease such as prosthetic valve infective endocarditis, which these patients may also have a component of ATN for other medications or coming in a septic shock, it could ultimately lead to um, a worsening or an acute kidney injury, leading to complications such as need for dialysis, and in our case, you know, delay in surgical management in this patient population. These are all great points uh, made by Dr. Ryder and, and Dr. Soner. I think, um, you know, what's really interesting, this is something that I think probably we all experience um, quite a bit in medicine, is that 
um, you know, the, the data that the gentamicin and rifampin addition are based on are quite flimsy. Um, and now we're in the situation of having to um, essentially undo the recommendations that have been made in the guidelines over the last uh, nearly 30 years. Um, and so we're, we're trying to do research essentially to show that this thing that we do doesn't actually work. Um, and also what we really need to do is to try to figure out better ways to care for these patients, because um, as we alluded to earlier, the mortality rates for prosthetic valve, um, staph aureus endocarditis are very high. Um, and so um, this is shifting gears a little bit, but when I think about combination therapy for, uh, for patients in this situation, um, I'm much more inclined uh, to use regimens like daptomycin and ceftaroline for uh, MRSA um, or cefazolin with, uh, or oxacillin with ertapenem for MSSA. I think combination therapy in general does play a role in treatment of staph aureus endocarditis, whether it's native valve or prosthetic valve, um, but that we probably need to be looking in a different direction. And I think, um, again, this just highlights uh, with respect to guidelines, and we'll talk a little bit about this more later, some of the, the dangers that can come along with including information in the guidelines that isn't really well supported by, by literature, because now we're having to do all the work to essentially undo uh, an unfounded recommendation. And um, so hopefully we can... Um, we can do that uh, based on Dr. Ryder's paper and some of the other literature that's coming out. And then we can also start focusing on uh, novel approaches to try and improve the outcomes for patients with uh, this disease. I love this. Y'all are being so helpful. We're not just here to deconstruct dogma. We'll reconstruct your dogma. We'll give you some alternatives. Um, I think, you know, clinicians that have have attempted to manage just thinking about MRSA prosthetic valve endocarditis for a second, a regimen of vancomycin, gentamicin, and rifampin, not only from a toxicity standpoint, but also from a the burden of administering all of the doses of all of those medications, that's a lot to keep straight. And so if we can, you know, simplify that, but still, um, as you mentioned, provide combination therapy, that's going to give us synergistic killing. Uh, why not reach for something, you know, like daptaroline, uh, as I like to say, uh, wonderful. All right. Uh, before we kind of leave the rifampin gentamicin conversation, um, I, I want to have one last question. So when I'm working through kind of applying literature, with some of my trainees. Uh, I like to reference Build-A-Bear Workshop. I think all of us have probably either been there with, with children. Maybe you have been the child, the adult child. There's no judgment. Uh, but, you know, at Build-A-Bear Workshop, in case you haven't been, you pick out a little stuffed friend, a bear. It can be a rabbit, a turtle, whatever. Uh, you, you know, get to pick out clothes for it. You make a wish on its heart. You get to construct this little furry friend exactly how you want. Um, so when we're working on applying literature, I like to say build a patient. Uh, based off of the, the data that we have, what should that patient look like? How old are they? What comorbidities do they or don't they have? Um, so I will ask you, if you could build a patient, build a patient workshop, uh, who should still get gentamicin? Who should still get rifampin? Anyone at all? Again, I think I know the answer, but want to, to give you guys the, the build a patient moment. All right. I'll start off with this one and give you my version of the staph prosthetic valve endocarditis uh, build a patient. I personally don't see a, a big role for gentamicin at this time. I think it's kind of an older studied thing that's carried through and been dropped out for uh, native valve endocarditis, but is somehow still carried on for prosthetic valve endocarditis. And as, as Bobby Joe already alluded to, you know, there's a huge rate of AKI at baseline in this population, up to 40% in endocarditis in general. And so avoiding any further uh, insult to injury is important. Um, 
one could argue maybe there's a little bit of help with clearance of bacteremia, um, but I'm not sure that it's worth it. So I think the case for rifampin is a little bit more interesting and nuanced as there might be a role for rifampin. Um, and the particular patient that I would build is one who has prosthetic valve endocarditis and is not receiving any surgery. There's a retrospective study of surgically treated staph endocarditis, including prosthetic valve endocarditis, that didn't find any benefit of rifampin in, in that population that already received surgery. So the, the patient would not be receiving surgery. They would need to be otherwise fairly healthy and be able to tolerate uh, rifampin. They couldn't be on any medications with a significant drug-drug uh, interaction, so their anticoagulation would probably have to be warfarin. And then they would um, they couldn't have any underlying liver disease like hepatitis B or hepatitis C. They'd probably need to have pretty close uh, follow-up that they could do um, for laboratory monitoring. And they wouldn't start the rifampin until they cleared their bacteremia. So with, um, with that said, I think we may actually get an answer to this question that I'm kind of posing. Um, there's been some very exciting and recent news that the Staphylococcus aureus um, network adaptive platform trial or the SNAP trial has actually been funded to study this question of whether adjunctive rifampin is beneficial in the treatment of Staph aureus prosthetic valve endocarditis. So this is a pragmatic multicenter phase three open label non-inferiority randomized controlled trial. It's going to be called RIFA-SNAP, and it will randomize patients with uh, staph aureus prosthetic valve endocarditis to rifampin or no rifampin, looking at a composite outcome very similar to the POET trial. And so there's more to come on this in the future as the trial was only recently funded, but this trial design, I think, offers a real opportunity to answer this question in coming years. I, I would agree with Dr. Ryder. Um, I, I'm taking a little bit more of a a uh, black and white approach of, in my build of air patient, I just really don't see compelling literature currently, um, as we've been mentioning time and time again, uh, current randomized control trial, um, to add these two therapies, whether that be gentamicin and or rifampin. Again, um, I'm not usually a black or white thinker. I'm usually more in the gray area. Um, but I can't really advocate for these two medications right now. Also, um, just going back to me being as a pharmacist, another con for these medications would be therapeutic drug monitoring for both the vancomycin and the gentamicin, which in my opinion can be sometimes like throwing a dart at a dartboard blindfolded really. Um, so although there is like growing expert opinion in counter studies, um, most observationals, um, not randomized controlled trials, I think it can be a long process to get like how staff and non-ID specialists to deviate from the current guidelines. Um, but my long story short is I actually don't have a bill to bear for this. Yeah, I'm in a similar um, position to, to Dr. Stoner here. I think, um, and she and I talk about this quite a lot when we, we often get consulted on patients where the diagnosis of endocarditis is a little bit unclear. And I think we will try to think about it. Am I more likely to help this patient with this therapy or am I more likely to hurt them? And when I think about gentamicin and rifampin for most of uh, these cases, I feel like I'm more likely to hurt the patient than I am to help them. Um, so there really isn't a scenario where I would treat a patient with staph aureus, prosthetic valve endocarditis um, with rifampin. Uh, so I just don't envision a scenario unless I'm also treating them for latent TB at the same time or something like that. Um, 
you know, in patients with persistent bacteremia, I would favor the use of the combination therapy regimens that I mentioned earlier, the daptomycin septaline or oxacillin or cefazolin with erdipenem if the patient has MSSA. Um, and similar to what Dr. Ryder said, if the patient's undergoing surgery, um, I really wouldn't see a, a role for, um, for gentamicin in those patients. Um, for patients with MRSA, I'd be pretty reluctant to, to consider the addition of vancomycin and, and gentamicin together due to the significant risk of ne nephrotoxicity. It's really the only scenario where I might consider a two-week course of gentamicin would be in a patient with MSSA, prosthetic valve endocarditis, um, who can receive treatment with an anti-staphylococcal penicillin or cefazolin. Their blood cultures have cleared. They're not undergoing valve surgery, and they have normal renal function. So it's a pretty narrow window where I um, would consider it. Um, and again, we would closely monitor them to make sure they, they weren't developing complications from the, um, from the treatment. Perfect. Thanks, y'all, for obliging the build-a-patient metaphor. I do think sometimes it's helpful. Um, two of us have have no patients, which is A-OK. -okay. Uh, I know one of the, the possible controversies was dosing of gentamicin, um, which we we won't touch on because it sounds like uh, we might agree that the dose is zero milligrams, so that's an easier argument that we'll we'll save for a future episode. Um, so uh, endocarditis, you know, has, has always been one of my favorite disease states to learn. I think it is fascinating, and I've enjoyed kind of the interplay between between uh, a disease state that is diagnostically heavy and getting to learn from my colleagues that are diagnosticians, um, but you still have medications and the therapies and management of those uh, playing a huge role, especially with some of the durations that we, we have for these patients. Um, how do we, since we're suggesting some changes in management compared to what the guidelines are currently recommending, um, how do we implement, you know, a, a change like this? Um, what kind of strategies have y'all found to kind of optimize this partnership between pharmacists and physicians? Uh, and what tips do you have for others uh, trying to emulate a similar model? Um, I'll go first, uh, and then I'm sure uh, Sammy will have some addition to this. Um, so I'm currently a clinical pharmacist that specializes in infective endocarditis, which I think is quite unique. Um, and I work really closely, I would say, parallel with our endocarditis team um, at our institution. Um, one way our team has been successful in providing detailed communication surrounding our recommendations. So I constantly am reaching out to primary um, team pharmacists, consulting pharmacists with each of our recommendations, um, which are sometimes deviations from the current IDSA guidelines. And um, our recommendations are based off of you know, literature that's out there, but again, may not be well accepted um, with like the health staff. And so just providing detailed education to um, each individual group. So we've set up um, educational ses sessions with, for example, like an internal medicine pharmacy group or an ICU group to provide, you know, primary literature and expert opinion and allow for um, questions um, and I feel like continuing the work with our primary teams and provide that detail and literature or lack of literature really um, to them can be reassuring, but it definitely takes a unified front um, from our team and a lot of time and effort to continue to reiterate um, what we are doing in our practice. Yeah, and to piggyback off of what Dr. Stoner said, I mean, I think a key part of what makes our team effective is that we're just that, a team. Um, and so we, as uh, she alluded to, have a separate ID consult service where we exclusively see patients with endocarditis and cardiac device infections. Um, and I think that is, is a little unusual. Um, I think most larger um, tertiary care centers probably don't have that set up. And I think there's been uh, historically a little bit of resistance to that. 
uh, within the ID community. I've tried pitching this at other places that I've worked, and there's uh, sometimes a feeling that, you know, endocarditis, this is bread and butter infectious disease. And so every infectious disease provider um, should be able to manage that. And I think, you know, in a perfect world, that uh, would be true. Um, but we've already seen within infectious disease that we have subspecialization. So we have people who do additional training so they can uh, take care of patients who have transplants. We have people who specialize in HIV care. Uh, we have people who specialize in treatment of hepatitis C. Um, and so endocarditis is probably the disease uh, amongst that group that has the highest um, in-hospital mortality. And so uh, to me, I think it's intuitive that you would um, want uh, people taking care of these patients who um, are very focused on it. And um, so we really push to have that separate consult team uh, that focuses on that. Um, you know, we have uh, Dr. Stoner as our pharmacist, who's always rounding with the team. Um, and we try to have a limited number of physicians who round on the service, uh, which allows us to create a, a more standardized approach to patient care. And we really try to take the same approach from start to finish with each patient, evaluate the patients in the same way. Um, you know, we also have a nurse navigator, uh, a social worker, and an advanced practice provider on our team. Uh, and so for, for people who are, um, you know, interested in improving the, the care of their endocarditis patients, I would really stress the importance of, of the team approach. I would really encourage people to um, have an open mind as they think about doing this. It is different than what we do historically. But the point I always uh, stress is that our outcomes for patients with endocarditis historically are not good. And so we have to think about new ways uh, to care for these patients. Um, and I think this is, is one part of that. I feel like we often use the phrase dream team to describe different things, but it sounds like y'all literally have formed a dream team to help manage these patients. So um, I think that that is really cool. I think a lot of our listeners will either be jealous and or hopefully inspired, uh, like you said, to advocate a little differently for this patient population um, and this disease state. So thank you both for, for sharing that. That is awesome. Uh, now we're going to pivot a little bit to uh, a scientific statement that I think lots of us were excited to see. Uh, so the American Heart Association released a scientific statement this past fall on the management of infective endocarditis in people who inject drugs. So this was created by experts in the fields of infectious diseases, cardiology, addiction medicine, and cardiovascular surgery, again, alluding to the importance of building that team and making sure you have the right folks at the table uh, in response to the increasing incidence of infective endocarditis. Uh, among this patient population. Uh, so if you have not had a chance to give this document a thorough read, I highly suggest you immediately save it to your references. We'll have it linked in the show notes for you. Uh, it's divided into three main sections of clinical expertise. The first is integration of addiction consultation, including addiction psychiatry as a critical component of comprehensive care. Uh, the second component, antimicrobial therapy, and then third, cardiac valve surgery management. We've already alluded to the supreme importance of all three, so we'll we'll touch on all three here in a moment. Uh, we'll take the next few minutes and unpack section one, integrating addiction medicine and psychiatry as a key component of managing this disease state. Um, and actually to quote the scientific statement, treating infective endocarditis alone without concomitant addiction treatment for substance use disorder is failing to treat the underlying cause of illness, an ideal that is a principal tenant in all other medical conditions. Uh, I loved that statement, so I wanted to read it word for word. Um, what have your experiences been in partnering with addiction medicine and and what pearls can you share with our listeners? Yeah, thank you. I, uh, I was also enthused to see the new um, American Heart Association document uh, this fall and the emphasis on addiction medicine uh, and psychiatry as part of uh, 
comprehensive uh, approach to patient care. Um, this is something in our multidisciplinary team meetings, that exact sentence we have talked about many times that um, you have to treat the underlying, uh, underlying disorder as well as the, the endocarditis that the patient is presenting with. Many of our patients uh, may return to use, but uh, often they don't know that um, it was specifically the injection drug use that led to their episode of endocarditis. So we uh, work closely with the addiction medicine team to talk to patients about, um, you know what, we're not here to judge you. If you do relapse and use again, you know, that, that's okay. But if you don't use a needle, you're much, much less likely to end up back here um, with endocarditis. So uh, we really try to, to emphasize that and our addiction team helps with that. Um, and I think um, finally, with respect to the addiction medicine team, they, um, they advocate for the patients um, on a daily basis, whether it's to the primary teams, to the surgical specialties, to our team. I think they're a great advocate for the patients. Um, and it, it's really um, exciting to get to work to them, to work with them um, on a daily basis. Yeah, I would echo that. Um... Where we work, working with addiction medicine has been awesome. Um, as a pharmacist, I love taking the opportunity to work with addiction medicine um, on how um, we can use antimicrobials alongside medications for opioid use disorder, such as methadone or buprenorphine naloxone combination. Um, it allows me to discuss possible drug drug interaction side effects with the primary team. Um, we usually interface weekly, if not a couple of times a week, to discuss like what's the best options for patients um, with their antimicrobials alongside with their medications um, for opioid use disorder. Um, one thing I do want to kind of touch on is that there's a lot of discussions, um, you know, from what's the best overall care for patients who inject drugs um, and talking about drug drug interactions and potential side effects. Like one thing that comes up a lot is lenazolid and the possibility of um, serotonin syndrome in the setting of buprenorphine naloxone versus something like methadone. And there was a nice um, article in Open Forum Infectious Disease, um, July of 2022 um, by Edward Taver, which looked at a cross-sectional analysis lenazolid um, in combination with methadone or buprenorphine as a cause of uh, uh, serotonin toxicity. And really what they found is it was about 500 patients, I believe 494 encounters where lenazolid was administered for methadone or buprenorphine. Um, they only found two possible cases and no definitive cases of serotonin toxicity. Um, and I think that just speaks volumes in the possible serotonin toxicity occurred in patients mainly with methadone lenazolid. So I know um, we are always concerned about drug interactions and especially when you send medications down to, you know, um, your community pharmacies or retail pharmacies, there's always um, kind of the discussion in the hall of like, should we fill this, should we not? But especially in the setting of lenazolid and um, something like Suboxone, which is buprenorphine naloxone, um, you should feel a little bit more comfortable and there's new literature coming out, but I thought it was a really great article to just kind of highlight that, you know, some of the, the older kind of scaries of lenazolid causing ser serotonergic syndrome and um, serotonergic toxicity um, is kind of the thing of the past um, if you want to make a blanket statement for all medications that could cause this because you're really seeing more and more literature to say you know you can use it in particular situations and I think for our patient population when we do have to lean into something like an oral regimen which I know we'll get to later alongside medications um, for opioid use disorders you really have to think about that and you should you know talk to your providers and that's where addiction medicine and um, ID really cross paths. So, Yeah, I'll just say 
in regards to the AHA statement, you know, when I first saw that come out, that was like one of those, you know, must read papers, like, you know, print it out and read it as soon as I can sort of things. And I, I was happy to see it and, and just really uh, for the AHA to use their platform and, and really connect uh, the, the fields of um, uh, ID and um, addiction medicine. I'll, I'll just uh, say that as far as um, my interactions with our addiction psychiatry team, they've been nothing but positive and that it's one of my first steps in the situation of a, a patient who has any infection related um, to injection drug use that their team is on board and we work very closely with them. I'm quite impressed with the multidisciplinary team that you've developed at, at Kentucky there. And it's really um, quite cool to hear how that works in action. The other thing I'll just highlight as far as things for learners is I always try to emphasize the importance of taking a really good injection drug use history from the patient and sort of learning where possible missteps may be in the, in the process. Um, if, if they continue to inject drugs, um, you know, simply providing alcohol pads to decrease the amount of uh, staff and strep that are on the skin could uh, significantly decrease their risk and, and those harm reduction techniques that we can use um, I, I think are really key and important for us as ID providers who best understand the microbiology of most likely how uh, an infection was acquired, especially when it's an unusual organism, not just like typical uh, uh, staphylococcal infections, um, to really try to address that and, and figure out where um, we can change things in the future. I love it. If anyone knows of any addiction medicine colleagues that listen to breakpoints, feel free to direct them to this point in the episode, a huge uh, bill of gratitude to, to them and everything that they do uh, for our patients. So this brings us to, to segment two of the AHA uh, scientific statement, which is antimicrobial therapy, our bread and butter. Uh, the authors of this particular statement note that there's probably a lot more that could be said about this portion. Um, and they cracked me up. I literally laughed. They specifically referenced the word count of the document uh, when they're in this section. So they uh, that that made me smile. Uh, so that is why they only focus on staph aureus endocarditis, but certainly, um, you know, we, we could go on and on for every pathogen, but uh, given the duration of treatment needed for infective endocarditis, um, potentially given things like surgery and such, patients will, will hopefully be able to leave the inpatient setting um, and not have to stay inpatient with us whole time. Uh, so this often presents a need for people to consider OPAT or outpatient antibiotic therapy. Uh, we want our patients first and foremost to receive their antimicrobials safely. Uh, and it's it's clear, you know, as OPAT continues to expand that there's no one size fits all uh, solution to this particular uh, sector of ID. However, um, what are some key elements that you guys have seen in practice that you, you definitely consider when you're triaging patients who may be appropriate for OPAT? Um, and what do these conversations kind of look like in your practice? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first with this. Um, as a previous OPAT pharmacist, um, I think there's a lot of elements to consider when you take what in general, not even just with patients with infective endocarditis who have a substance use disorder, but I think some key elements to consider for outpatient parenteral antibiotic therapy would be housing stability. So do they have a house? Can they get to their house? Um, do they have a support system? Do they have, you know, a family member that can help them um, with any type of social or financial situations that they're dealing with, such as transportation? Um, 
do they have uh, a current substance use disorder combative plan? So are they on MOUD? Um, do they want to go to outpatient rehab, things like that? Um, the actual ability to manage IV antimicrobials at home, um, which is an entirely different episode, I feel like <laughs> we could talk about, um, because it's it's difficult to do multiple infusions a day. Um, it's difficult to manage that. How are you delivering it? Are you doing an elastomeric ball? Are you doing it on a pump? Um, and things like that. Is it multiple times a day? Is it continuous infusion? Um, and people have a hard time, whether they have a neurological or cognitive impairment or physical impairment that doesn't allow them to actually give them IV antimicrobials. Um, and going back to the support system, do they have someone who can administer it for them? Um, and I also think their willingness to do IV antibiotics at home is something to consider as well. Um, and with all that, I would like to give a shout out to my colleague here at the University Kentucky, Ryan Minot, who is the OPAT pharmacist, who has really catapulted the OPAT criteria for our patients in general, but also with these patients with substance use disorder. Um, and as a little bit of a softer note, I would also like to think about building relationships with these patients um, who have infective endocarditis coinciding with a substance use disorder, which our team's been working really hard on. Um, I think that leads to a lot of trust, and it also leads for them really wanting to get better and come to appointments and really stay engaged. So I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of elements that go into taking care of these patients, but there are a few that I wanted to comment on. Yeah, I'll just uh, comment on how uh, it, it works for us, at least. You know, we work really closely with our addiction psychiatry folks um, uh, and appropriately triaging based on some of the factors that are mentioned uh, by Bobby Joe, especially in regarding MOUD and, and kind of their um, substance use combative plan and uh, determine who would best succeed with OPAT versus an alternative option. And usually I uh, work really hard from day one uh, on building rapport with these patients because it is really important that you have a relationship with these patients as was just mentioned. Um, because some of these conversations are pretty hard um, uh, and you have to figure out kind of what options are feasible um, uh, with the help of social workers about, you know, how can we fix uh, or improve things like housing support, clinic transportation, et cetera, and really determine what's best when we look at the different options, including, you know, a prolonged hospitalization versus going to a rehab center uh, with IV antibiotics versus um, daily infusion center visits or long-acting glycopeptides or oral antibiotics or, uh, of course, OPAT. Um, you know, the, the thing that we always have to remember is that um, the patients have their best interests in mind, which is they want to get better. And if we work with them and try to reach where they're at, um, we can help them uh, get better uh, in many different ways. And so addressing whether they think that they can take an oral antibiotic three times a day or whether they can get transportation to an infusion center um, are really important. And then once you reach an agreement, um, especially if you're going to reach an agreement on something like oral antibiotics, then you want to really help facilitate um, close follow-up in the clinic and um, have things set up. Uh, in the situation of an unplanned discharge, um, you want to have things kind of set up and ready to go um, prior to reaching that point. Some things I'd like to emphasize here is that we don't, you know, there's this historical concern that if we send a patient home with substance use disorder with a PICC line that they may use uh, through that PICC line or um, they, they may overdose as a result of that. And there isn't really any data to support that that is going to happen. Um, there is some there is some literature to suggest that there um, 
the rates of follow-up might be a little bit lower in that patient population, but um, that uh, literature was published. There's a former colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Sheridan, uh, at the University of Pittsburgh published this, I think, back in 2014. Um, and that was before addiction medicine um, teams were widely available at most hospitals. The access to Suboxone um, and MOUD was much, much lower. Um, and so I think you know, taking um, that into consideration that we don't really have data that says this is more likely to happen is really important. Um, one of our addiction providers uh, here at uh, University of Kentucky, Laura Fumuji, uh, who is also a co-author on the AHA statement, is uh, the uh, PI on a study that's ongoing currently looking at uh, performing OPAT uh, versus usual care um, in patients uh, who are on a buprenorphine product and require IV antibiotic therapy. Um, and because we're essentially trying to answer this question, um, can we treat these, uh, if patients are on MOUD, can we um, effectively treat them with OPAD? And how does that compare to having them stay in this sort of monitored setting, which is often what gets uh, talked about is having the patient go to a nursing facility or stay in the hospital. Um, so I think there's some uh, exciting information and data hopefully coming down the pike, but also important to remember um, just that a lot of this, uh, these things that we're talking about aren't, again, aren't really borne out by evidence. It's more theoretical concern um, and, and sometimes our own, uh, our own personal discomfort with, uh, with an approach to care rather than uh, something that's based on, on concrete data. Um, and I think uh, we're gonna talk a little more about oral antibiotics here in the next section, but I think that's, um, that's also uh, something that we try to, to consider too, is, is OPAT really the best thing uh, for this patient, do we do we think that IV antibiotics are truly the superior treatment to uh, for this patient? And um, I think there there are some questions to that as well too. Absolutely. You guys don't even need me to host. You're segueing right into the next topic so wonderfully. Perfect. So uh, for for a myriad of reasons, we will have individuals who who either aren't appropriate for OPAT or recently we had a, a patient who was cleared by addiction medicine and was was perfectly capable of performing OPAT, but their, their insurance company uh, denied it because they didn't feel comfortable due to the history of substance use disorder. So that's definitely a separate episode where we will just rant the entire time. Uh, so, so talking about oral therapies and this, this concept of complex oral antimicrobial therapy or COPAT, which I think is, is kind of one of the new frontiers, um, poet, the poet study helped us here. Um, but it's, it's often been said, I think, uh, the patient that fits the poet criteria is a bit of a unicorn. Um, so I think some people maybe feel more comfortable extrapolating, uh, the data from poet than others. Uh, so what do you guys think we should keep top of mind when we are managing infective endocarditis with oral therapies? Um, and this can be in the setting of persons who inject drugs or not. Uh, how do you see oral antimicrobials kind of changing the landscape here? Yeah, I'm happy to go uh, to go first on this. And as I alluded to, I think this is a nice transition from the last topic. Um, so, you know, I, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more too about the AHA statement with respect to antimicrobial therapy. Um, so, for, you know, first off, the document advocates for offering the six weeks of IV antibiotic therapy to all patients with endocarditis as sort of the first line um, approach. And so, you know, for one, um, the American Heart Association endocarditis guidelines actually don't advocate for six weeks of treatment for endocarditis for all um, all cases. Now, if the patients have staph aureus, then yes, um, 
uh, for um, MRSA, the recommendation is for six weeks. But um, even in MSSA, right-sided endocarditis, the American Heart Association guidelines actually say you can treat for as short as two weeks. Um, for patients with streptococcal uh, native valve endocarditis, the recommendations are anywhere from two to four weeks based on the AHA guidelines. So six weeks, I think there's this myth that six weeks, it's and all endocarditis is six weeks. And I think um, that's just not true. And the guidelines actually don't say that. Um, and I think we do have... Um, high quality data here demonstrating the non-inferiority of oral antibiotics. Um, you alluded to POET and people talking about, um, you know, POET having a small number of patients who have a history of injection drug use that are only five out of the 400 patients. But, um, you know, those are all, those patients are people just like all the other patients. There's no reason to think that the antibiotics, um, you know, will be less effective in those patients than in any other individual patient. Um, there's no study that's shown that those patients are less likely to take their oral antibiotics. And there's actually more literature coming out that if those patients leave patient-directed and you give them oral antibiotics, you know, their mortality rate is lower than if you don't give them anything. So I think, um, I think the fact that the, you know, the lack of those patients shouldn't, shouldn't scare us off because I think that is coming a little bit from uh, some of our own internal fears and our own internal bias rather than coming from concrete data. Um, and I think a crucial point as we talk about all of that is that the superiority of IV antibiotics has really never been proven for the treatment of endocarditis. Um, Brad Spellberg um, did a great sort of review historically of the role, uh, the treatment of endocarditis over the years since um, the advent of antibiotics in the uh, sort of 1930s and 40s. Um, and there really weren't, you know, head-to-head -head trials showing that the IV antibiotics were superior. So I think that's important to remember that because it's in the guidelines, it's not based on clear concrete data, it's really inferred. Um, so from my standpoint, I think it's reasonable to offer patients, um, whether it's a, a patient who injects drugs or a patient who doesn't inject drugs, um, I think it's reasonable to offer the patients who have MSSA, coag negative staph, strep or enterococcus fecalis, the organisms that were studied in the BOAT trial, um, oral therapy um, as an equivalent or alternative option to IV therapy. Um, and so that's typically what we do in our practice is that we will give patients the option of, of IV versus oral. Um, again, you know, POET, it's a, a randomized controlled trial, you know, outside of a meta-analysis of multiple RCTs, we're not going to get a higher level of evidence to support the use of um, oral antibiotics. Um, so that's, you know, I, I probably come, uh, come off uh, probably uh, with a stronger stance than most people uh, on this topic, but that, that's been our practice. I think our experience has been that the patients we treat with oral antibiotics do well. Um, we have a case series of 37 patients that we're working on writing up. We've had very, very low rates of uh, relapse infection um, with our oral regimen, so we're excited to get that out there here in the, uh, in the next few months. Um, and then the other piece I just wanted to mention about the AHA statement, which again, overall, I think it's a great statement. Um, I think um, the, you know, the issue of focusing just on staph aureus um, and oral therapy for that organism was interesting. I know there were word limit constraints, um, but one of the big criticisms of POET, as I'm sure uh, most people listening are aware, is that there were no patients with MRSA in that study. Um, and so we don't really have great data on what an oral regimen to treat MRSA endocarditis should be. 
Um, but unfortunately, in the AHA statement, they um, give a recommendation for treating MRSA endocarditis with an oral regimen of linazolid and rifampin. And then they, they specifically cite POET um, as the reason, uh, as sort of the data or the evidence for using that regimen. Um, but again, there were no cases of MRSA. There were some methicillin-resistant coag-negative staph cases, and linazolid and rifampin were among the antibiotics used for those cases. Um, but there were actually only four patients um, with methicillin-resistant coag-negative staph. So they're extrapolating um, from that four-patient sample of uh, coag-negative staph to MRSA, which uh, to me feels like an, a dangerous extrapolation. Um, and again, this is coming from someone who's very pro or the use of oral antibiotics. I, I just think we need to make sure that we're um, making these recommendations based on sound literature, just as we discussed earlier, as we talked about gentin rifampin, um, you know, where there's not uh, substantial literature. And again, you know, what we see too is once this gets in a document, people read it and people start, um, start doing it. And um, people don't always have the time to go and look at the citations and, and review everything that the, uh, the guidelines are, are highlighting. Um, and then again, uh, just as a last point, you know, the, the majority of cases actually in the POET study um, were patients who had strep or enterococcus species. It was over 73%, as opposed to only 21% of patients on POET who had staph. Um, and now, you know, yes, patients with uh, a history of injection drug use you know, we're suspicious that staph will be their, um, their etiologic pathogen, but depending on what study you look at, the proportion of patients with staph aureus endocarditis secondary to injection drug use varies. So sometimes it's 75% of the endocarditis is caused by, um, by staph, but in, um, but in other uh, series, you know, 40% might, might be caused by strep or enterococci. So it can be a su substantial proportion. Um, and we didn't uh, get any recommendations about what to do with those patients. Um, and those are the patients I think we, we find that we're often treating with oral antibiotic therapy. Um, so just, uh, just some kind of things to, to highlight. I think the document is, is a great document and it's important that we're talking about these patients and thinking about ways to take care of them in a comprehensive way. But I, I just wanna stress how important it is that when we, um, when we have a guideline that's out there, it's making recommendations that we make sure that it's, it's citing the literature appropriately and um, using the best available evidence. I'll just um, highlight a little bit more a study that I think you were alluding to, which is a study from Laura Marks group at WashU that was specifically looking at partial oral treatment in uh, people who inject drugs that had complicated staph bacteremia. And about two thirds of them had uh, endocarditis. And the major takeaway was that compared to patients who had a full course of IV therapy or a uh, partial IV, partial uh, PO course, the patients who discharged on their own accord um, without any antibiotics had the worst outcomes, which was, um, which I think is quite intuitive. Um, we need antibiotics to treat these infections, but it's so important. Um, to provide at least anticipatory guidance um, to the primary team early on in the, in the course of a patient's care in, in the case of the patient um, directing their own discharge. And so I, I usually try to write in my note um, and communicate with the team kind of an in case of emergency uh, oral antibiotic plan. Um, so that way patients can receive their antibiotics um, at a pharmacy if they leave. Um, the other thing I'll just point out is that the partial oral therapy group did just as good as the full IV therapy group, so long as they had about 
10 days of IV therapy before the switch based on kind of how they did their analysis. And um, uh, that's somewhat similar, I think, to the POET trial and a little bit of lead-in IV therapy, which I think we can debate how important that is. But I think what is the most interesting part is that the oral antibiotics that were used in the study um, that had fairly high success rates, um, even if the numbers were a little bit small, were things like beta-lactams, doxycycline, and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, um, not necessarily in any combination therapy at all. And again, not all of these were endocarditis, but they were staph bacteremia. And so um, I, I think there's a lot to learn about um, oral, oral antibiotics and uh, staph bacteremia and staph endocarditis, um, especially after initial clearance of the bacteremia and, and uh, achievement of source control. Um, I think the only thing I would add, again, as a pharmacist, and I'm a pretty practical person, is, you know, when you think about oral therapy for these patients um, versus um, IV therapy, you want to think about, like, are they willing to take it, just like you had mentioned, Dr. Ryder, earlier? Are they willing to take amoxicillin four times a day? Are they willing to take a medication twice a day? Um, and things like that. And I know a lot of times when we're thinking about oral therapy, um, you know, I think as a global group. I think our group in particular at this institution has leaned a little bit more into oral therapy than others. Um, is you think about it, it's kind of like a fast moving thing, like they are leaving and we need to hand them something before they get out the door. And I think preparing for this and having alternatives for these patients not only provide the opportunity for the primary team pharmacist or provider to make sure the patient can financially afford it, like is it going to require prior authorization? Are they going to have it in stock when they leave? Um, another thing is providing them with an opportunity to come back and see their ID physician or ID provider. I think that allows for a relationship building, um, which is what we like to do here, is we really like to make sure that even if they do leave on their own accord, um, maybe not what we're telling them to do, or it's an alternative plan that we have for them and we gave them that option, is to make sure they have the ability and the willingness to come back and see us. Um, because for something like if we provide provide them with something like linazolid, like we are, we are very wary of like making sure that we're only providing them with a certain number, usually between 10 to 14 days and making sure they can come back to us. So we can check their labs and we can like monitor them and see how they're doing. So I think um, it is a lot of um, kind of alternative planning in the beginning. If you are thinking about a patient um, for oral therapy, I, I do think it's a great option. I just think from a practical perspective and a pharmacist perspective, I always think about like, can they afford it? Are they going to take it? And, you know, for our perspective, are they going to come back and actually um, see us in clinic? Yeah, I love the concept of a in case of emergency oral plan to hopefully avoid some of those um, you know, last minute emergencies at discharge. So maybe not even in case of emergency, but in case of discharge, an ICD plan, uh, you know, where we were able to start anticipating the needs and also level set expectations with patients. Um, like you said, uh, you know, taking amoxicillin four times a day is, is also something that's going to be very new and it's going to be an inconvenience in their life. So being able to chat with them about, you know, what that looks like um, is also equally important. One of the things we also will try to provide recommendations in the note, um, we look into prior authorizations for the medications very early on in the course, even before we're sure that the patient uh, is going to be leaving on oral antibiotics, just so that it's taken off the table, because the, the last thing you want is your, the patient's leaving, and then you find out that 
there's going to be a thousand dollar copay for the linazolid that you've prescribed them. So we really try to, to get at that early. And then the follow-up, we try to, if we have any patients we're suspicious about leaving, we make an appointment, um, just put it on the books. So we try to get everybody seen within two weeks of discharge. Um, and again, this is just where the team approach is really helpful um, in terms of coordinating the follow-up. We have our, our nurse navigator who can call the patients and check in with them and screen for any kind of side effects from the antibiotics. Uh, if the patients live far away and maybe they can't get back in for their appointment, uh, we can at least do labs locally so we can, we can perform that monitoring. Um, so another way that having that team allows us to provide um, you know, the oral antibiotic therapy by giving that closer, uh, closer follow-up and closer attention. Awesome. I love all of this. Last but most certainly not least, I want to give the group an opportunity to touch on duration of therapy. So uh, we've alluded to this a couple of times in the episode so far, and I know within infectious diseases kind of as a whole, the shorter is better trend has has taken the world by storm. Um, so how does that fit um, You know, within infective endocarditis? We've already alluded to the fact that not all patients are going to require six weeks of therapy, um, but how, how do we work through that for our patients? I can start here um, with something that, again, was already highlighted earlier about uh, two-week courses of um, treatment and uncomplicated right-sided endocarditis due to MSSA um, it, that is discussed in the guidelines. And there's at least, I think, three small randomized controlled trials done in the late 80s to early 2000s that had pretty high cure rates in the 90-plus percent range many of which had uh, combination therapy with an aminoglycoside, although not, um, not all of them had that in the arm of the trial. And in this realm, as far as how much we can shorten the treatment um, uh, for endocarditis with some of that uh, older data. Yeah, I, I do think those are some, some great points. And, and we really would benefit from, as we talk about, you know, where trials are needed, um, looking at, um, the, the duration of therapy because um, there, there weren't studies that directly compared, you know, three versus four versus five versus six weeks. And, and how did we get to sort of six weeks um, as um, sort of this mainstay? And then, as I mentioned earlier, um, that's actually not what's recommended for, for um, certain organisms and depending on the valve that's involved. Um, I think the other uh, piece I wanted to highlight is um, the effect that uh, surgical management can have on the duration of therapy. So um, there have been a couple of uh, retrospective studies that have tried to, to look at um, look at this question. And, you know, in theory, this all makes, this makes sense, right? If the, the nidus of infection, the infected valve is being removed, um, then um, theoretically, um, you know, the additional antibiotic therapy um, shouldn't need to be of a prolonged duration. We've seen this with intra-abdominal infections and stop it trial. And now we're, we're treating patients for four to seven days who've had perforated bowels potentially. Um, and so the, the two papers I wanted to highlight, um, one was uh, came out in um, 2018. It was in the European Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery. It was from a, a group uh, in Leeds in the United Kingdom. Um, and they looked at uh, 182 episodes of infective endocarditis, um, and they found that the uh, patients who received less than 14 days versus greater than 14 days after valve replacement um, uh, of antibiotic therapy, provided they had no other metastatic sites of infection, had similar mortality and relapse outcomes. Um, 
Notably, they found that uh, whether the patients had positive valve cultures, um, the longer duration of therapy did not show an improved outcome compared to the shorter duration of therapy um, in that situation. Um, so this was a, a you know, pretty interesting um, paper highlighting this finding. Um, one of the things um, I also uh, enjoyed about this paper was that uh, the patient's duration of therapy were all selected by a multidisciplinary endocarditis team. So, you know, you get the surgeons talking with the infectious disease providers, you're talking about what, what did they see in the OR, um, having that kind of full conversation before you make the decision. Um, the endocarditis teams have been around in Europe for quite a bit longer than they have in North America. So really another example of how that team approach can potentially help truncate therapy. Um, and then uh, there's an older paper from, um, from 2005 from a group in New Zealand that looked at the um, duration of therapy. Um, and they specifically highlighted um, 54 patients in their group. I think they had 358 total, but um, 54 patients who had negative valve cultures and received less than 14 days of treatment after surgery. Um, and there were no relapses um, in that group. And um, so again, um, some more data to suggest that perhaps 14 days of therapy post-operatively might be, might be reasonable. Um, and especially when you're, as we've talked about, there's so many complicating factors in terms of, um, you know, whether you're trying to administer OPAT, whether you're trying to administer comp uh, complex um, oral antibiotic therapy. Um, sometimes I think we have to take a step back and say, do we even need all these antibiotics? Can we potentially treat um, for less time uh, and, and not harm the patient? And I think um, these two papers uh, show some encouraging data uh, with respect to that. And again, just another time, example to highlight that we don't know that the you know, longer is, is better. And, and as you alluded to, um, in most other areas of infectious disease, we found that shorter is actually better and has less toxicity, less side effects. Perfect. I love that. Um after all we've talked about with the management and coordination of care with all the therapies that we're choosing, um, we may have an option really just to shorten therapy for some of these patients. I think that's a really important step. Alrighty. This brings us uh, to kind of a one last minute chance to give our audience any, any wisdom that you would like to impart to them. Uh, so what do you think every ID clinician should either know or remember uh, while managing patients who are presenting with infective endocarditis? You know, many of these patients uh, uh, present and they have um, possible considerations for anticoagulation. The, this is specifically the left-sided endocarditis patients we're talking about here, but um, they may have um, a, a DVT. Um, they may have some septic pulmonary emboli if they also have um, uh, concomitant right-sided endocarditis. They may have a mechanical valve where... Um, bridging anticoagulation is, is something that you need to consider. Um, so there may be times you need to think about anticoagulation, but what I would highlight is that um, these patients are not like your typical patient when you're thinking about anticoagulation. So um, there was um, an interesting study uh, also published in CID. CID is getting a lot of, a lot of shout outs here. Um, but in February 2019, um, that looked at endocarditis and both the short and long-term risk of hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and so what they found was that um, in the first year after an endocarditis diagnosis, um, those patients were 10 times more likely to have a hemorrhagic stroke compared to the general population. And a lot of that was driven by the use of anticoagulation. So, um, you know, if the patients have a clear-cut indication 
uh, to anticoagulate them where, you, you know, there's clear benefit. They have a saddle pulmonary embolism. They have a large proximal DVT, um, you know, some, something where there's a strong indication, then, you know, sure, go ahead and do it. Um, a couple of things that we try to recommend are, you know, one, uh, please get neurologic imaging before you do that. Um, most of the literature uh, um, with respect to looking at uh, asymptomatic uh, has found looking at um, screening for cerebral emboli has found that many patients are asymptomatic. And so um, these patients may have subclinical strokes or microhemorrhages, and then you put them on anticoagulation and they're going to uh, very quickly deteriorate. So our approach is if a patient with left-sided endocarditis needs anticoagulation and there's a compelling reason to do it, we uh, do at least a non-contrast head CT. And then if that's abnormal, we get our neurology colleagues to weigh in uh, on what additional imaging they need and when should we consider anticoagulation. Um, but again, I would just say um, this is not something you want to just kind of throw on someone on a heparin drip because you're, um, you know, they have AFib and you're bridging them or something along those lines. You want to be really thoughtful about it because the potential, if you're uh, uh, wrong, is or if or even just you, know, you might be right to, in theory, to put them on anticoagulation, but the consequences uh, can be catastrophic and and potentially um, you know devastating. Um, so that that's probably the 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 thing I would highlight about um, anticoagulation. Um, and I think the other piece I would say, which I've I've probably harped on in all the other sections. Um, is uh, that um, uh, you know the guidelines um, are all uh, are great because they do provide us some guidance, but um, those they're all um, written by you know people just like you and me, um, and that we don't have high quality data. So a lot of times the guidelines are based on extrapolation, as we've discussed from you know, animal models. Um, or it's just expert opinion. And so um, it's really important when you see something in a guideline, I would encourage people to, um, to just ask the question, you know, where does that come from? Why are we doing this? Um, and really try to get at uh, the root of it. Because I think what, um, what, we'll, what you often find is that, you know, we're, we're all just trying to do the best we can, but the information that we have is based on small series of 10, 15 patients, or just animal models. And, and so um, just because it's in the guideline doesn't mean it's necessarily the right answer. Um, I would say um, in contrast to all the discussions surrounding primary literature that we have talked about, um, kind of echoing uh, what Sammy said, my one thing is more of a holistic approach and that is to remember that there isn't a one size fits all for these patients. Um, guidelines and randomized control trials are fantastic and we should rely on their findings, um, but ultimately everyone will run into a patient that does not fit into the box, right? So um, believe in your critical thinking, review current literature, and work with your colleagues like ID physicians, pharmacists, cardiologists, CT surgeons, addiction medicine, et cetera, um, to find that key for success for each patient. So don't be afraid to look into alternative therapies and have discussions with your team, like especially as a pharmacist, like me and Sammy talk all the time. My social worker talks all the time. I talk to addiction medicine. I talk to primary um, providers and pharmacists to really kind of have a team-based approach for these patients. So don't be afraid to speak up and ask questions and say why, just like Sammy alluded to, and and really find you know alternative therapies for these patients. So, so I think the thing that everyone should know that just uh, fits quite well into what's been talked about um, about you know guidelines and, and evidence and how to make decisions is that um, 
currently the wiki guidelines group is working on a endocarditis um, uh, guideline. And I think uh, I know myself and uh, Sammy and Bobby Joe are all involved in this. And so look out for that um, in coming months. And uh, it has a large amount of really good information about diagnosis of endocarditis, treatment options, and, and highlights also the role of the multidisciplinary um, endocarditis team. And so that is what I would highlight as being something that people should know is to look out for that. Hot off the press. You heard it here first on breakpoints. I love the, the casual dropping the news. Okay. Wonderful. Um, I know our, our audience, I'm sure, will be excited to see that. Uh, this brings us to the conclusion uh, to our segment called I Feel Nerdy. Uh, I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. Uh, so for today's edition of I Feel Nerdy, I would love to know your favorite endocarditis-related teaching tip that you enjoy sharing with learners. I feel like mine's kind of boring, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway. Um, so one thing I always talk to my learners about, which I feel like we could go on and on is not to assume that your patient will stay on the same regimen throughout their entire course. So they always usually start on, um, what we consider the house wine, like being cefepime or something. Um, and then they get narrowed into something for, um, when they come to our team for infective endocarditis, something like if they have a, um, methicillin susceptible staph aureus, um, infective endocarditis, they're on cefadzolin or oxacillin. Um, but they might not stay on that. And so making sure that you're working with your micro team to request a broad range of susceptibilities, um, if possible, to ensure you have a plethora of options if you need to change their antibiotic plan. So whether that be orals is something that we brought up a lot. Um, and then also just making sure getting back to the first discussion, if you are going to use your fan pin, which I'm absolutely not advocating for, um, make sure that you ask for susceptibilities, um, ideally prior to initiation. So that's my I feel nerdy comment. So my I feel nerdy uh, endocarditis related teaching tip uh, has to do with enterococcus. We haven't talked a lot about that today, but um, I enjoy teaching that there is a big difference between enterococcus faecalis and enterococcus faecium, especially when it comes to risk of endocarditis. I think listeners of this podcast are probably well aware that uh, faecalis is much more likely to be ampicillin um, and vancomycin susceptible and compared to enterococcus faecium. But the big thing with faecalis is that it's much higher risk of causing um, endocarditis. And there's um, emerging literature that was highlighted both at ID Week 2020 and 2021 that um, we should really think about endocarditis, uh, not just in community onset cases of unknown source, but probably any case of enterococcus faecalis, um, including nosocomial ones, and even when the source is known, uh, just because there is some uh, much higher risk of uh, predisposal to endocarditis with this organism compared to others. The other thing about faecalis that's interesting is there's been an association between enterococcus faecalis and colorectal neoplasia. And so I always just make sure that my patients are up to date on their colonoscopies if they haven't had one, or maybe they got one in the past and are due for um, uh, another one in the not too distant future. And just try to kind of emphasize that, that, you know, that is a possible source and we really should address that uh, possibility. That's a great point about the enterococcus. That's something that we talk about regularly too for our uh, enterococcus fecalis endocarditis patients. Um, I think uh, for me, uh, probably 
the biggest thing that I like to emphasize is the role that these multidisciplinary teams can have in actually decreasing mortality. So we've talked about all the little, you know, the different things that we're doing, but what does that translate into in terms of a clinical outcome? Um, and uh, our group at Michigan, uh, we found that our um, in-hospital mortality went from 29% to 7% after we started our multidisciplinary team. Um, and this was 10 years after uh, a group in France showed um, a 10% decrease in their one-year mortality uh, after starting a multidisciplinary team. There have been some other European centers that have demonstrated that mortality benefit. So um, it's not just, you know, uh, everybody sitting around and talking, it, and it sounds great, but it actually is leading to a mortality benefit. Um, and so I really try to highlight that um, as I talk to learners. You know, I think if we had a medication that could do that, um, I think people would be, you know, all, all for it. But this is a little more nuanced, a little more complex, a little harder to necessarily see how, you know, doing A leads to B, but, um, but it really is quite valuable. And the piece, um, you know, I like to emphasize with the learners, because many of the students who rotate with us won't be going into infectious disease, is that you can take this approach and apply it to almost any disease. And so, um, you know, in this case, we've done it with endocarditis, but there's no reason that you couldn't take the same approach and apply it to, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease uh, or whatever disease uh, it is that you're interested in taking care of. So, um, the mortality benefit that comes with these groups, the opportunity to expand it to um, all sorts of other areas within medicine, I think is something that I get really excited about. I love that. Um, I'm almost embarrassed to share mine because it feels very inadequate, but I trusted that y'all would take the important stuff and I could just follow up with a little rhyme as per usual. Um, so I really struggled anatomy of the human heart and really just cardiology pharmacy in general was was not my forte. And so any tip that I could latch onto, um, I would take. And so when I was learning blood flow through the heart, tricuspid valve comes before bicuspid valve, you try on clothes before you buy them. One of my preceptors taught me that and it has stuck with me forever. So um, again, very inadequate compared to the wonderful wisdom that you all offered that will actually help people, but try before you buy, try on clothes before you buy them. Uh, all right, guys, I can't thank you enough for coming and sharing all of your advice and breaking down these data for us. Um, I think that this is uh, really a treat and it was a joy to celebrate Valentine's Day on Breakpoints with you all. Thank you for having us. This is great. Thank you so much. I, I learned a ton from uh, the rest of you on the, on this uh, episode. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for, for having us and um, to Dr. Stoner, Dr. Ryder, and then and then just in general, just to thank you to all the, the team members we work with here at the University of Kentucky, who because um, it is really a team effort to take care of these patients. So a big thank you to everybody that we that we work with here. And of course, our last uh, but arguably most important thank you is to our listeners. So thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Jillian Hayes, and our featured speakers have been Bobby Joe Stoner, Jonathan Ryder, and Sammy L. Delati. Breakpoints was created by Julie Ann Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by myself and Jeanette Bouchard. It was edited by Rachel Britt and peer-reviewed by Christian Gill and Helen Ding. Our production team includes Veronica Zafant and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. Thank you.